Hey, Carl, so Carl, you got uh, you're up too. You have anything to, uh, to chime in? You might have some, uh, some more detailed oriented uh, sort of topics. No, not particularly at the moment. No. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to make sure you had an opportunity because between uh, between John and me, we could probably go. We could do this uh, until it gets dark. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> Um, so what I did, I actually wrote a little uh, sort of opening because it's such a, a special day in the bunker uh, because the, the, the spirit animal of the, of the bunker is here. So I, in thinking about what I wanted to talk about, um, I was listening to the recent uh, Drew series episode that dropped, and he was talking about being motivated by the lack of basically civil infrastructure um, for regular people to engage in politics because politics is basically like a closed shop. <clears throat> well, this is, this is to, to my mind, by design. And uh, while I was away for a couple of weeks, I did a lot of reading. And I'm reading this book, uh, Democracy in Chains. Uh, it's pretty recent. I think it's within the last year or two. Nancy McLean, the historian and professor at Duke, uh, wrote this book, and basically it's about how uh, after Reconstruction, a lot of the Southern governments started putting in place mechanisms that weren't even Jim Crow necessarily, but they were economic sort of plans that were built out of Mount Pelerin and the Hayek School, um, and they talk about specifically the state of Virginia. Uh, for example, the state of Virginia after Brown versus Board of Education uh, made a big move to basically ban all public schools and do sort of a, a early voucher system in the 50s uh, because they did not want to want to integrate. Uh, <clears throat> so it, there's a there's a long passage in here about the state of Virginia, and I I highlighted one two two paragraphs because I think they're 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 very telling. <clears throat> Virginia's oligarchs maintain their control, not with night rides but with carefully designed rules. They showed little, little tolerance for the vigilantism freely practiced in the Deep South. In fact, when Byrd was governor, the state effectively outlawed the Ku Klux Klan and all but ended lynchings. The rulers understood, better than others, how clever, rules, uh, how clever legal rules could keep the state's voter participation among the lowest in the nation relative to population and its taxes among the lowest in the nation relative to wealth. Above all, the rules serve to hold in check the collective power of those who might want their democracy to do more. A case in point. Virginia was among the first states in the nation to outlaw the closed shop. That is, to outlaw contracts that require union membership of employees. Months before a conservative Congress passed the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, called the Slave Labor Act by critics, and passed over President Harry Truman's veto, the state's governor had signed a pioneering, quote, right-to-work law to weaken labor unions. If, in the face of this snare of shrewd restraints to keep them from influencing government, some citizens still managed to come together to seek change, the daily press could simply overlook it. 
That, too, was part of the, quote, Virginia way. If collective action could not be wholly stopped, at least the news could be buried. Folks, welcome to a very special episode of Highlands Bunker. We are in the belly of the beast in the shadow of Rockford Tower with really uh, the person who is a huge motivation for all the work that we're doing uh, because he's doing it at, at the level that it needs to really be done. Um, our hero from RD25 in Newark, Representative John Kowalko. Well, thank you for that compliment. I don't, I don't know if I'm a hero. Uh, I just uh, take it very seriously. Uh, uh, one thing I take more seriously than, than anything in my life, I guess, is the, is the, the uh, sense of responsibility I, I have when I engage in the job as, as a state representative. And uh, I can't even imagine the awesome responsibility at, at a higher level, but I, I can certainly point to uh, what I feel is uh, a classic example of, of what I am uh, tasked with, and that is the fact that I'm one of uh, 41 people that writes laws, uh, policies, drafts them, and, and, and authors them, and, and pa helps pass them that affect the lives of a million people in Delaware. I mean, you just do the math on that. That's pretty pretty darn awesome responsibility to have, uh, and you better embrace it. Otherwise, I, I don't believe that you uh, should enjoy the privilege of a of a state paycheck as a legislator if you don't want to embrace that. So it's very simple, my motivation. My motivation is to do as best I can for as many people as I can and to uh, try to stifle uh, the, the what you just referred to in the, uh, in the attitude of the, uh, the early Virginia early after in this decade or yeah, the 1900s. Yeah, mid 20th century. I mean, yeah. the, the book covers from basically after Reconstruction but, yeah, I mean, it goes right through whether it be poll taxes. We're seeing that again in Florida, right to work. I mean, they mentioned that, and we're, we still deal with that. Um, I mean, it was she ref refers to it as the Virginia way. I mean, it, it couldn't be. I, I just, when I read that, I saw the parallel. And this is something, these are, these are the things that I think are by design. They're, they're structurally uh, and, and legal, but it really... You know, you mentioned you were there to represent as many people or help as many people as you can and, th and think about that. But a lot of the infrastructure is to do the opposite of that. Oh, absolutely. I, I've always called, and I, and I do it more blatantly now than, than, I, than I used to because I don't know what if, but if people hear me. I, I call Delaware the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce of the world, uh, of the, I mean, of the United States. I mean, capitalism has become uh, a tool uh, that is or an incentive that is used to promote success by uh, Wall Street success. Uh, when you when you hear the reports of uh, the economic reports today or yesterday in the paper, uh, the success stories, the the, uh, the un unemployment rate is lowest in 49 years. I'm telling you, 49 years ago, people had a better standard of living from working 40 hours a week than they do today. And now we have since in that time we had a, a absolute U-turn where uh, women enter the workforce not by design, not by, by, but by necessity because the, the single, single family income was not enough to support it. This is all generated and, and regurgitated by, by, the, uh, by the corporate attitude of we have to have our profit so you can have a job. And, and, and that's just been disproven in, uh, so many times and I don't think people are listening at, Accurately, I think that uh, someone came up to me the other day and uh, 
a, a guy who was pestering me about Bloom because they, they threw him out of there or whatever he worked there. A, a nice guy, but really almost swallowed up in his own concerns about himself. But he said to me something telling. He said, yeah, they, you know, they hired young kids down there. And then they, they, they unload them before they get tenure, I guess. And he said, and they don't know that they're, they're living hand to mouth. And, and, and it's true. And there are there are people that are fairly fairly hardworking people that are living hand to mouth, and and we turn a blind eye to that. Yeah, when I can't I, even get a, a, a bracket creation in tax. Yeah, what I found very telling, and and I I suggest everyone go uh, look this up, and maybe we can put it in the show notes. But a few weeks ago, uh, in the House, one of the female representatives, and I wish I could remember her name, uh, was getting testimony from Jamie Dimon. Now, J.P. Morgan Chase is a obviously a huge entity of this this vampire squid that we're talking about, and and she uh, basically explains that in Irvine, California, there's a bank teller making a certain wage, and what, what just the regular standard of living in Irvine with one daughter, she's in the hole four hundred five hundred dollars a month, while Jamie Dimon, you know, buys back stock with his tax breaks. And, and, and makes $31 million a year. Now, on the back of a woman who can't afford to even take, almost barely can't afford to take care of her kid, who's in the hole every month, on the back of that, you know, you're, you're living a, a second Gilded Age. And again, when you, when you look at it, like all of that, a lot of that operation, especially with the big banks, especially with LLCs and Chancery Court, a lot of that runs right in our backyard, right through us. It doesn't run. This is the... Uh... What do they call the head of the river? This is where this is it where flows into the rest of the, of the, of the states. Yeah, the mouth of I'm the river. This, this, this is corporate a... attitude, corporate benevolence, uh, a benevolent attitude toward toward chamber of commerce, toward their interests, toward corporate interests. I've, I've struck as many blows as I possibly could, and ineffectively so far, about the, the giveaways. I mean, I, I, you've seen my writings. I've written... Had had it published in a news journal. I don't know if, it, if not enough people are reading them. I guess that we we gave away uh, eight hundred million dollars uh, when we had the eight hundred million dollar deficit, and Jack Markell's administration had given two hundred fifty million dollars away in corporate benefits to companies such as Dupont, uh, uh, Bank of America, uh, Sally May, uh, Johnson Controls. Uh, my favorite story is uh, is that when the Dupont, uh, an article appeared about Dupont, and uh, they were awarding the University of Delaware. <clears throat> a quarter million dollar contract to investigate more efficient solar panels. Now it's up my alley. I like I like the idea of solar panels, and and then, I, then in the same article, uh, Dupont had declared that they were nearing completion of a two hundred fifty million dollar factory in China that they were going to own on Chinese soil, employing twelve hundred Chinese workers to manufacture the solar panels. So they were, so you you can't even put a tariff on that because it's not. Chinese stuff coming here. It's DuPont. It's American make. It's it's the way the rules are. And and I was I was stunned by because it came right after the uh, uh, the defeat or maybe it was in the middle of the debate of their power plant over in the, over the campus on the Star Campus. And it was very interesting to me, intriguing to me that DuPont takes money hand over fist from Delaware. We give it to them hand over fist, and, and uh, they uh, they feel no obligation whatsoever to consider building that factory here. And another recent beneficiary of a, of a tax break was Johnson Controls, the distribution plant in Middletown. Johnson Controls and, and, and they, uh, my uh, uh, 
colleagues, uh, not my colleagues, but more more or less of the uh, government uh, uh, also management budget and uh, Rick Eisenberg, for instance, and and uh, Jeff Bullock, uh, two of my uh, what I call Rasputins that have managed to survive through the market. Can't kill them. You stab <laughs> no, them, drug no. them, throw them in the river. But uh, I talked to them and they said, die. well, that was for that was for infrastructure. It was for infrastructure which upped the value and benefited Johnson Controls. In the same article, Johnson Controls completion, uh, announced completion of a $100 million factory in China where they are building the batteries that we are selling here out of the distribution center. And then another case in point was the $7 million that everybody applauds their hands at that we gave to uh, AstraZeneca. And when I questioned that, because they, it was for a certain job total, I think it was 1,500 jobs by such, such a year, they reached that total and then immediately went under it in the next year. And, and since then, now they've closed down, shuttered most of that facility. And they said, well, that was for infrastructure, for highways. Johnson Control, I mean, uh, AstraZeneca owns that property. We gave them $70 million worth of home improvements for no cost to them and not recoverable. They recovered certainly when they sold it because it upped the value of their property for sale. These things go on constantly. Now there's a, a new, uh, what I call uh, offensive to my, to my uh, morality, a bill that was passed uh, two years ago creating the Partnership for Prosperity, which is a continuation of the Economic Development Office, which I harangued uh, uh, senselessly, I guess, or uselessly, I'm sorry, uh, of giving away all this money under the guise, at least they did it in public, I mean, at the hearings. Matter of fact, Nick Wasilewski went to a hearing and he asked for if I was okay with him making a statement. He just wanted to make sure that we were on the same page. And he went to a hearing over, uh, they, they used to have it publicly, uh, and uh, he went to a hearing and J.P. Morgan was being gifted with a $10 million gift. Not to create anything real, not to create jobs, just to forestall any moves they might pre uh, hope to make. Uh, and, uh, and he said to them, he read his statement, he said, he, declared, he said, your profits last year, your net profits for the last quarter were $34 billion, I think. J.P. Morgan's profits for the last quarter, this is only about four years ago, three years ago, and uh, he said, won't you withdraw, in the name of DC, won't you withdraw your request for the $10 million? They said no. They got, they got the $10 million. Which brings me to, and it's available in the archives of the News Journal, when they interviewed uh, Ed Breen right after the, uh, the uh, Dow, Dow DuPont merger. And uh, DuPont got $13 million in cash to, I, I, I never can figure out what the intention of this is. It's, to grow job preserve, sometimes they'll still even bold enough to say, well, we want to forestall a jersey from raiding these well, jobs. Well, again, I think that the, the issue to me is that the intention really is clear to me, uh, which is just to keep the infrastructure in place so that 10% or 15 or 20% of people hold the power. <clears throat> and, it, and and it, again, it's sort of why I read that. Well, uh, that passage, it's, 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 it's uh, you know, it, it's, it's codified into law. Yeah. And... Uh, you bring it up, and I, I, I wanted to seg the conversation a little bit into Dover, too, because we've talked a lot in here about there's been some uh, liberal or left victories in the, in the General Assembly. A few, three or four really sort of big victories. Um, but after a half a session, we still don't see a lot of 
uh, a lot of action. Well, uh, well, let me finish that story about Ed Breen. Okay, I apologize. Very, yeah, that's okay. It, it was right after the 1700 layoffs were announced. And he was asked, and I asked Tommy Cook at the uh, the hearing on the floor about the Delaware Compete Act. Well, either of these giveaways, that and the giveaway Delaware Compete Act with a tax break, which was going to cost uh, Delaware $60 million that year and $80 million a year after. And uh, I asked both of them the same question, and Ed Breen was asked by a reporter. The $13 million, will it forestall the layoffs? Or, no. Will it re- bring back some of the laid-off people? No. Then why are you taking it? He said, because they're giving it to us. Flat out quote in the paper, because Delaware is giving it to us. And when I asked uh, Tommy Cook about the Competes Act, will that bring back the job? The same answer, no, it won't. No, but we, we, see, we see it implemented in a lot of other states. Seven, I think it was. And I said, well, how's it working there? Well, we don't know yet. The jury's still out. And so this year, I'm reading the DFAC report. This is what, what's ironic and, and timely about some of these things. I'm reading the DFAC report, which is a projection of revenues. And in there is a, a revenue, uh, a, an unanticipated revenue gain of $40 million. Let's say $40 million. Of that, $25 million is defined as the DFAC, I mean, I mean the Competes Act, which was supposed to cost $120 million by now, only cost $90 million. So they count that as a saving. They lost $90 million, but they're saying we made $30 million because it was less than we anticipated losing. This is the way this government in Delaware is being run. And it is, it is incentivized. It is absolutely incentivized by a, a cabal of corruption. Uh, of, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm not sitting here as a, com- not a, a communist. I'm a socialist because I believe that socialism is the only way that we can make this country function appropriately for the people. But when we talk about the money matters, I don't even know what you would call it, give it away. It's like Santa Claus government. And there's nothing to be gained by it. And there's never any proof of return on investment. There's going to be even less with the Delaware Prosperity Partnership because they're not even, they've written into their law, they're not subject to FOIA requests. Well, I mean, we've talked about that before too. That's another one of these, this is another one of these rules that is used to, uh, Keep everybody in the dark. You know, the car, when 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 Carney and Wilmington decided uh, to to change the bus routes, or when they whenever they decide to do something, everything they figure out a reason when they do these things to make sure that uh, FOIA doesn't uh, apply. Yep. So when you see things like that, it should become very clear to somebody that yeah, there's a reason they don't because what they're doing, although it's it's most likely perfectly legal because they've codified it into law. It's so embarrassing that they can't release what they're actually doing. And, uh, yeah, it should be a real big indication to people about really what's going on. You know, I, I, I think it, even more than embarrassing, it would expose such a conflict of interest. Everybody that sits on that board, everybody that sits on that board has, uh, has a conflict of interest that they are beholden to the corporate interest. So it doesn't matter whether it's wasted money or whether it's money that could be better used somewhere else, it is put in the pockets of, of, of the corporate interests, uh, whether it's speculatively or not. And I've argued one thing that, that I've argued, in, in Europe and in, in Ireland in particular, the, the counties can't compete against each other. The EU does not allow countries to compete against each other for a business. In other words, they can't walk in and say, give us 15 million, we'll move there. Uh, United States is the only place that does that. And if you look at it from a, let's look at it from a, an economist perspective, a pure and simple economist about common sense. Delaware doesn't have enough money to compete with these other states, number one. 
So when you're throwing bad money after good, and it's some kind of an attempt to uh, to situate yourself, what Delaware does have is, is a wonderful transfer court system and a wonderful corporate tax structure, a wonderful corporate tax environment, uh, a wonderful corporate environment. And, and instead of just relying on that, they insist they're going to go out and purchase uh, uh, some uh, allegiance or loyalty from from a company. I mean, uh, I don't know who in their right mind would ever think that that's a viable option. But when you said about progress being made, one of the first bills that was introduced, and I was proud to be a co-prime when it was Kim Williams' bill, to restore the uh, the minimum wage which was not anywhere near what we should be asking for, but it restored a minimum wage, take out the, uh, the training wage, take out the 90-day uh, the, the, uh, uh, well, tra- training wage. There's two aspects of it. We, so we had a bill to repeal that. And I said, I badgered, uh, it was signed to a committee, and uh, it was Bill Bush, who was the chair of that committee, and I went to him day after day, and I said, when's this bill coming out? I went to Pete. Sports golf. And Pete said, John, we don't, we don't want to do this bill right now. We'll have trouble uh, maybe at the end of the year. I said, what are you going to have trouble with, Pete? Last year, he said, well, we promised. I said, no, no, no. I voted against that bill last year. We didn't promise Mike Ramona or Republicans anything. What we did was we got blackmailed. We got extorted. We got stuck in a corner here, and we didn't have the guts to get out of it. So I'm going to tell you this flat out, Pete. The bill should come to the floor, and there should be no consideration given. We should have enough votes. Now I have people in my own caucus that that do not believe in they don't believe in the brackets. Uh, there's only a few of them, but they are powerful people. They sit on powerful committees, right. and uh, they and they don't they don't believe in putting us at risk. They think that somehow they're going to lose votes. That's not true. They're not going to lose votes on this. But but in any event, Pete said to me, "Well, I'm not bringing it forward." So I went back to Bill Bush. I said, "Want a hearing on this bill?" So he finally said, "Yeah." Okay, I'll have a hearing on it. And then I called Kim and she said, well, I get the word, it's not gonna go anywhere. So now, here we are, uh, three, four months into a session, four months into a session, and, and we're going nowhere with the bill, which is obviously should be should be passed without even a murmur of opposition except and, for Republicans. And this is, my, this is where I get discouraged because I look at things and say, <clears throat> sort of, uh, you, you described it just like this. Eliminating a training wage because it's a it's a starvation wage. I mean, there's no that being able to do that is is immoral and should be outlawed. I mean that and that's just like as you said, the bare minimum. Uh, we talked in here about the proposed brackets that you've proposed at pretty much every session, I think. And I've I've talked about it with very centrist, moderate corporatist people, and they know that's not even radical. And so you look at these just incremental, any kind of incremental move to, to, to uh, chip away at this in any small way is blocked by Democrats. And it's, it's uh, something that needs to be called out at every turn. It's, 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 a, it's a moral, really a moral disgrace. Uh, I think I'm glad. I mean, obviously, Pete Schwartzkopf is no friend of this show for a myriad of reasons, but I'm glad we have a particular uh, example now to to describe how fucking morally heinous that is. And again, this is why I feel like even even when you when you look at the most uh, the, the, the the most moderate 
moves are 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 still sort of stonewalled, and you got to yeah, it, it, it's very discouraging. And do you see any? I always ask people to give me some hope, but I, I think maybe you and I feel the same way about this. I mean, obviously we're going to keep working electorally, and and we could do something. I mean, how do you feel about any sort of progress on that front, on the legislative front? Uh, I get discouraged. I, I sometimes look at it as a uh, more than a challenge, more a uh, a, a, a task that that rolling that rock up the hill, having it roll back over me. But I can't stop for a number of reasons. Number one, I think most importantly is that the current administration, with the people I have aforementioned people, have argued with me until there are voices left. They developed a, a, a speech defect that, oh, the bracket bills would be appropriate. Jack Markell said flat out to me, people will be fleeing Delaware. And I showed him the numbers. And this was in the middle of that, uh, that debate when we were right in the recession. I said, people will be fleeing Delaware. And I showed him all the tax rates in surrounding states. I said, they're going to have to hire a U-Haul and take their business to South Dakota if they want to get a better tax Yeah, profit. and I've made that point but, in here, too. The idea yeah. that these small are, like, <clears throat> they have nowhere else to go. The other rules are so favorable to corporations, to people with, the, you know, to LLCs, for example, as yeah. you said, that they're so favorable. A small increase in our cut so we can do something for regular people seems very reasonable, and they won't do any of it for the reason you said. Well, it, it, what's discouraging, I think, in the, whole, in the whole debate is the fact that even when you're talking about a $150,000 tax bracket or a $250,000 tax or a $500,000 tax bracket, uh, creation of that. Uh, when you're talking about these upper class of people, earners, their businesses can't leave this state. It's not even a, a, a matter for debate. And they can't leave the state if they're drawing a, their check from their business. So what they're going to be left with is stuck uh, it, paying that rate, which is, for, for the life of me, I cannot understand why no one responds to this publicly in my own caucus even, a $500,000 Earner, year earner, ad adjusted tax, Delaware taxable income, five hundred thousand uh, dollars. A single earner would only pay an extra uh, two thousand, uh, I think, uh, two hundred seventy-five dollars. A quarter million dollar earner under my brackets would only pay an extra six hundred seventy-five dollars a year. A year. I mean, I'm not trying to diminish what that might mean to people, but. Damn, if you go to Starbucks. Well, let me say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to diminish what it might mean to people. <laughs> just, as a, just as a point of commentary. Yeah. Because we've said in this room before that what those numbers you just gave us are, ex are extremely uh, reasonable, I think. And I, I'm in a position where I would pay higher taxes. I'm not in that kind of like half a million dollar position, but mm -hmm. the idea that I, so I just came back from New Orleans and I had a nice time. I go to Jazz Fest every year with my wife. And, uh, you know, you have a great time. You go out to dinner, you spend some money. And the idea that I can go down and, and spend, you know, several thousand dollars to go have fun, but I can't spend another $600 to make sure that the schools have right funding or whatever it is, is a, is a it's a, it's a, it's sickening. And so I, I mean, I think they should be higher just as a point of reference. And, and, and again, this is why I think 
Um, I, I like that you put it in those terms because it's it's really blatant. You know, if you make two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in this state because you're a corporate attorney, uh, or you're a bank managing director, or you you know whatever you're a chemist or whatever, you're, that's fine. But the idea that you can't spend another six or seven hundred dollars um, to make sure that the community sort of has a little more is 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 really a disgrace in my opinion. It's, it's a disgrace in many ways. So it's a, it's a disgrace for the fact that the people that had the ability are those rich people that had the ability to create a, a tax bracket which is more favorable to them anyway. And who, who they've taken every advantage. Right. And one of the bills I offered was uh, uh, to uh, phase out uh, deductions. The, the administration uh, two years ago, in, in a, what I consider a, a, a bogus effort to uh, create bar brackets, create one, and then I want to take away uh, deductions for lower tax. They said, well, the people don't use that anymore. We're going to increase their... There's their lower rate. All I know is that when you do the math on it, that's a, it's a crock of shit. And I'm tired of it. I'm tired of these people trying to convince me that I don't know common sense as much as they pretend that they know fiscal or, or actuarial uh, economic uh, data because they're making up as they go, go along. And uh, when I talk to these people and I say, support, and this is the first year that we're able to do this because we had a year of a balanced budget last year. And I say balanced, I mean we had the money. We didn't have to worry about cuts, even though we did cut, you know, two years ago. We cut $36 million for well, the we schools. we talked about that, too, yeah. because, you know, the, the money that finally balanced was on the back of extremely harsh austerity to several, exactly. Sev exactly. several different... So what comes down to Pike? A support for a plan from, uh, from the Governor Carney for the budget smoothie, which I've called in public and I've written about it and it was published in the newspaper. It's not a matter of something that I've been whispering in any alleyways. Budget smoothing is a Grover Norquist wet dream come true. It is a balanced budget amendment. And I think I convinced more than 14 of my colleagues and that's why I didn't get through because they needed, the, I, I think it was a two-thirds voter, yeah, two-thirds, I think, were constitutional amendment study, even though it could depend on all the Republicans voting, they couldn't. So then he put the executive order in. Now, the, 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 the manner in which they do the budget, and, and I'm going to tell you, chair of the Joint Finance Committee at the time, Molly Smith and the chair of the Joint Finance Committee today, are in favor of that. They, I, I get lectured, well, the lectures don't last long because I'm not one to be, to be lectured to. Uh, they, they, they come from the angle of, oh, there's a lot of good things in here that could stabilize our, our budget for years to come. And I said, what? Let's talk, for example, what we gave them. We gave them, when we were asking for a corporate tax, minimum franchise tax increase, which every corporation that's incorporated in Delaware said, we're fine with it. Because it was a minimal amount, minuscule amount. Yeah, again, they're, they're, the, the benefits, they understand you know, that the benefits is, they're getting are worth much more than we're charging But them my, leadership, my leadership, my in, leadership in, in Dover... It made, the, it made the point that, well, we have to trade off. We already had the votes. So we had to trade off uh, the, uh, the the estate tax. And I said, and that's what has been done. And when I talked to uh, the chair of the, uh, the Joint Sunset Committee, I said, what benefit? Because that's in the recommendation from that uh, defect commission or something on austerity, whatever it's called. Uh, I said, we lost $9.2 million. You know what the argument was? Well, it wouldn't be at nine point two million every year. I said, "If it's a dollar, why are we losing it?" But yeah, what are you, what are you trying to tell me? Every year, yeah. yeah, I mean, and you won't pass the bracket bill. So this 
this last year was the first year, and I told the people in the committee, because you're not going to get Republican support. You're going to get all the uh, uh, the flatulence-producing uh, 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 orators <laughs> like, like Ramon saying, you know, I, I support this, but I won't be able to vote for it. But I said, no, 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 no. I don't want you to tell me you think it's a good idea. You want to show it with your vote. But Yeah, we but, almost got him the last time. Maybe we'll get him the next so, time. So when you talk about this thing in a, in a real sense, now is the time, and not election year, a, a stable revenue stream coming in, which is unstable to this point. It's based on the sheet tax, corporate tax, things that could dry up very rapidly, at least a, a majority of that money coming in. So the most stable form of, of a revenue resource is the PIT, a progressive PIT tax, personal income tax. And I flat out to my face, Joint Finance Committee Chair, that's not in the report. <clears throat> they don't advocate. They have, know what they advocate for? Increasing it at the lower level. Yeah, I, uh, my, I try not to focus on electoral politics because it's a, it's a part of the scheme, but it's not the whole scheme. Uh, but it's very hard when I think about Dover to not think about, you know, for example, I mean, you mentioned Mike Ramone. Look, I have I, I sort I knew the guy personally way back. I don't really know him anymore. I don't really care because he's 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 jamming up the works. So we almost got him the last time. Maybe we get him next time. Um, I just hope that those sort of electoral victories sort of translate into some progress in the legislature. Because again, and I and I'm not I, you know I don't want to um, diminish the electoral victories. I don't want to diminish um, some of the the policies of some of these new legislators, because I think that they're great. Um, but I'm not seeing anything. I'm not seeing anything new. Well, here's uh, wait, that's, that's one of the things we've talked about. You saw the ERA, right. which was sort of a, I'm glad that happened, but you know, that was sort of a rubber stamp thing that yeah, everybody right. can get. That was, that was a gimme. That was, that was a gimme. Um, I, we have the, uh, the, the, the vape, the nicotine vape, which doesn't mean anything to me really. Uh, we have uh, some of the gun laws look like they could go somewhere, which, again, I'm not <clears throat> I'm not personally uh, against that. I'm, uh, that's fine. Uh, I don't think they're really going to do anything. Uh, but if Brian Townsend wants to make a speech about it, that's fine. But I'm talking about the real material changes, even at a very, very uh, incremental rate. None of that seems like it's getting looked at. I mean, do, uh, what? Would you say that what what would you say the legislative success of the last year has been? I don't know that I that I have one. Right, and I, I guess that's what we mean. It's it's yeah. really, I'm I'm trying to think of a way to interject some energy into this legislative process because right now it seems like a lot of people who just want to walk around and take pictures with the governor at a podium. Yep, and. And until we, and the only way I can think to do it is the electoral system, which I don't necessarily, like, again, I understand it's a part of it. Um, but <clears throat> do you feel like that could happen? I mean, is that, am I, am I overstating the sort of the, the what do you want to say stalled or, you know, stuck in neutral gear nature of the legislature just Year after year, it doesn't seem like a lot. Uh, well, that, that uh, I guess you call that that roadblock, that uh, that cement shoe uh, yeah. uh, jog down a, down a path to real prosperity is certainly uh, dictated by 
a failure of leadership at the top. Uh, if if my bracket bills were uh, did get out of committee, if the governor said it's a good idea to stabilize the economy, it would pass because there wouldn't be one of the any of the and I know there's at least one, and it may be two, but I know one for sure that would vote against it. We still have 25 votes for it. What happens though in a, in a climate in Dover? And it has happened for the last 10 years that we've had a climate of fear and intimidation. Uh, I don't know if, if you remember when I was first removed from a, a couple of committees, chairmanship of the committees, uh, and, uh, and uh, it was Jeff Montgomery did an article, a real nice article. I didn't know it'd be that one. It was a Rebel John Kowalko. And it was like two and a half pages in a news journal. I remember this. And a uh, matter of fact, I, I reviewed it about a month ago, uh, not just for, for an ego trip, but. It, because I said things that I really mean. I mean, once once the powers of coercion, intimidation, and threats are exercised, there are people that get frightened. If you're going to get frightened by that, and I try to set myself up as an example, that's why I gave that interview so willingly. I said, no, I was removed unfairly. It was it was a completely uh, unnecessary, but also immoral approach to my service as these committee members, and. Uh, and I, and I think that uh, the, the, the only thing that I could ever acknowledge that came from this is maybe a lesson to be learned how willing I am to stand up for it. And I watched the new people come in, and I watched the people who came in at that time, still cowed by the fear that they were going to lose something. You don't know how many people that I know, if, because I know them in my hearts, and I didn't sit down and ask them this, but how many people in my caucus sit there and have gotten chairmanships, and they are so pleased with themselves getting those chairmanships they would never challenge a failure of leadership, just like they wouldn't challenge the governor for a failure of leadership, just like that won't challenge any of the Rasputins for a failure to give honest numbers. It's almost a clubhouse of a, a sort of a microism of what is going on nationally, what is going on in Virginia at the time. There's these excuses that are invented or uh, are made up or, or promoted that uh, this is for your own good. Take your medicine. I can't afford to take my medicine. <laughs> yeah, and that, I guess that's... I made a comment to someone recently, and, and I guess one of the reasons I'm sort of doing this is I, I do appreciate the fact that because it's like a closed shop, that people feel like, well, if they don't... If they do anything to jeopardize whatever little bit of power or prestige they have, then they have really, really nothing. But if you don't use the whatever power you have, you have nothing. That's the way I look at it. If you don't use it, then it's then it's really just a vanity sort of situation, which is very discouraging. The other thing is when people, you know, historically when people have gone against the Delaware way and they've been blackballed, they've had nowhere to go. You've been a, 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 an example of someone who's been able to do it really without a lot of support. But I hope that and I hope that I'm a small part of giving those folks sort of somewhere to go. Like bring, because as you said, people are afraid that they're going to lose some sort of position because there's really no other, no other apparatus to support that person. You've just happened to do it almost by yourself. But people are afraid, and I hope that we can build some sort of network that will be able to allow people to do the things that maybe they should do or support people to remove the people who aren't for people who will. Uh, and, and 
I, I agree with you to this extent. I'm not going to advocate for uh, candidate X to oust candidate Y. Uh, it's not my place to do that. Fair enough. I think it should all be seen uh, pretty obviously by their, by their attitudes and by their... And, and what I asked for, an examination of conscience. And I'm going to tell you a story. We're never supposed to talk about it in caucus and all that. And that's, that's a crock. But I don't bring things out of caucus just to talk about them or to, or to berate someone else. But I was in caucus, I think it was four years ago, whoever, and it was not the same group that we have in there now, but it was a, a group of people in there, and it was about the, about the bracket bills. And it was a non-election year, and I went through the bracket bill. They come out of committee, and Helene Kelly actually worked with me and got them both out of committee. She chaired that committee. It was very nice work on her part. And uh, they didn't get to the floor. The next half of that session was an election year. And I said, again, once again, we missed the opportunity for those that fear re-election uh, uh, pushback uh, if they pass bracket outside. I'm here to tell you that's absolutely not true. The general mind of the public is that nobody's going to come up and say, I'm running him out of office or her out of office because they've supported this. I said, so we are at a crossroads here. We do what's right and we create this progressive uh, tax structure, uh, which used to be, actually, you know, they, I think uh, in 87 or something, it was like 13% was our top rate. It was just 6.6 now. Anyway, long story short, I was getting a little heated because of the people in that room, uh, in my caucus, who were almost immune to hearing me talk. You know, it's sort of like, uh, okay, jaded, here he is again, talking about it. So I said, if you are worried, it's going to affect your reelection. I know I'm a bad person to tell you it won't because I have a district which has to be very intelligent, high level of, of political engagement. And they are. I have probably had the most uh, resourceful, intelligent, and politically uh, knowledgeable uh, district in the state. The fight in 25th. Absolutely. I mean, I have a cross-section of labor, of course, professors, uh, working families. You name it, I have it. Charter parents. Yeah. Anything like that. It is very diverse. And, uh, so I told them, and I did this. I, I guess I got angry, and I didn't plan it. But I said, if we can't do this, and I'm telling you, it's not going to cost the election, at least do it. If we can't do that in here, we're not only letting the people down, but you should be ashamed of yourself. I said, because if you're in this caucus with me, and I think, and, and, and you're showing me that you don't care about idealism. You don't care about democratic principles of fairness and, and, and equity. You don't care about equitable treatment for everyone. If you, if you've, whether or not you do care in your heart, but you're not demonstrating it, then I wish all of you would get up out of your seats and quit because you're not Democrats. Now, at that point, I said that in, in that tone of voice with that kind of uh, commitment only because I wanted to see, and there was, Five of us, I think there were six of us that voted against the budget that year or, something, uh, or the year before. I wanted to see who, including the, the allies, would stand up and say, which I would have said, someone said it to me, who the F you think you are, Kawako? You goddamn prima donna. Oh, you're, you're the damn, you're, you're the guy that sits on that podium and there's going to be a statue of you. I was waiting for somebody to say that. And you know what they did? This is a telling moment. In my, I guess, my history of futility, uh, <laughs> I looked around. And they didn't even raise their eyes and look at me in the eye. They cast their glance down, like, "Yeah, I know I'm a, I'm a, a goddamn 
weeks on the bench, but that's the way it goes. I, I at that moment in time, I, I, I vowed I'm going to redouble my efforts to do it. But uh, how, what path can I take? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised by that story. Uh, again, I think most people are uh, sort of have resigned themselves to the fact that and they've rationalized some sort of idea that this is what they have to do. As you said, like in the face of any even evidence, they get down there and they're in the system. So it just keeps going. Nothing really happens. It just keeps churning and churning and churning. And they couldn't even, as you said, they couldn't even stand up and, and, and say that you were wrong. Be you know why they didn't do that? Because you're, you're not wrong. I, I, I thought, yeah, but, but even in the, the manner and tone that I used, I thought someone would at least say even one one of my allies in, in thought would would say I'm saying come on you you can't be serious and the silence was deafening you know you heard that that kind of cliche and, and it, damn it was and it's just what it is is a, is a situation down there where the Delaware Way is not the Delaware the Delaware Way is a well marked trail uh, just like the uh, uh, the uh, the Adirondack Trail or whatever. That is kept tidy, clear, and accessible by the Chamber of Commerce and all the corporate interests. That's the Delaware way. I'll tell you a story. This is a true story. I was I went down to uh, Atlanta for NCSL con uh, conference, and there we come up with different resolutions and what the NCS National Council of State Legislators does. What they do is they have lobbyists that they send out with the resolution we vote on. There's like fifteen hundred state legislators there. And uh, the, uh, the resolution was to reinstate a version, if not the original version, a modified version of Glass-Steagall. That was going to be passed on to Congress if the resolution passed. And Kathy Cloutier was the sponsor of it. Now, I like Kathy Cloutier. I liked her for many years. Uh, it, she, she's not like uh, someone I'd put up there as, uh, as like the picture of a uh, backbone, you know, of America and all that. But, but it's... She does a lot of good things. She has a, she has a good heart. She takes. So. She came to me tonight that the resolution was going to be brought to the floor, and on the floor you need three quarters, I think, three quarters of the states to vote in acquiescence to it. And they had like one member of the state does the cast the vote, but he has to poll his members of the state. And she came to me the night before, and I had seen before she opened her mouth. I had seen from the balcony of the of the convention center in. I had seen her surrounded by five or six. And I, I recognize the banking industry people from Delaware. So she said, John, John, I, I, I can't run that resolution. I said, that's okay, I'll run it. So I bring the resolution to the floor at the uh, general business meeting, trying to get, and I had it lined up where enough people would support a motion to bring it to the floor. I think you needed seven states or something like that. And uh, got, it, got it on the agenda at the floor. And in, well, into, my, into my group uh, shows up People that I've never seen it done before. Okay, well, Joe Moreau's been there before. He was there, Catholic Lydia. Uh Earl Jakes was there, and uh, and then Brian Townsend came in. And uh, I talked to them. I said, "This is a good resolution. We passed." And they they took a vote, and they said, "We're not going to support it." And I found out later that they were talked to by. Corporate interest, and, and one in particular who flew in, the only one I've ever seen was the SESL. I'm not gonna mention names. You can surmise. You can yourself. if you want. I mean, we can we can drop the bomb right here if you want. Nah, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Well, it, it was it, the one 
one of the reasons why Brian and I do not see eye to eye on a lot of issues. Right. I, I sense a almost a, a betrayal of trust in there. So I had to announce, and I did, on the floor of that, uh, of that debate when we voted, that I was a spokesperson. I said, as a spokesperson and a sponsor of this resolution, I think it's a great resolution, but I have to cast Delaware's vote against it. And I said, but don't feel sorry for me and don't be embarrassed for me because I just think that this is a wrong-headed vote from there. And so it failed. And maybe it would have passed anyway, but the fact was that there was the Delaware way in action. The Delaware way was clear the path, coming through, coming through, Rich Heffron, clear the path, Jim D. Cheney, clear the path, the Chamber of Commerce. And I sat down with some of the Chamber of Commerce lobbyists, and I told them, I said, you know, there's no one down there that's more compassionate, a arguer or whatever, against over government overregulation. I said, the case in point that I brought to the Chamber of Commerce, I brought to other people there, was uh, the Office of Child Care Licensing, which has, I think, 300 pages with 600 rules on it for, for private businesses, daycares, which go from beyond the pale on making life difficult for an already low, low profit industry that really is necessary to keep people working. I mean, I, I could go into details for two hours about it. My wife could because she is a director of a daycare, a nonprofit. Anyway, when I go to, I went to the Chamber of Commerce and said, why don't you make a place to represent these people? Not to curry favor with me, but to be honest, if you want to be anti-regulation, you can't just pick the rich people and say, we don't want to regulate the banks. Well, they don't rich. have to, but they do. No, well, I was told. Well, by, that's part of the game, too, I always feel like, is that <clears throat> when there's politicking to be done, uh, it's like, well, we don't want to, to hinder the small business person. Uh, so that, But the small business person is hindered and probably could be less hindered. The, what they want to do is use that rhetoric but help the you know, the yeah. corporate person. Well, exactly. I was rebuffed by, and this is the way Jim DeChase said to me, well, they can join, it's $300. I says, how many, mom, you know, if Thelma down the street from here has a licensed daycare with five kids in it, she can't afford $300 a year. They're barely making ends meet. And the, and the centers hardly pay a minimum wage because they can't afford to. So I said, couldn't you have like a niche that you carve out? But the Chamber of Commerce could be the lobbyists. The Chamber the, of Commerce doesn't represent those people. No, they don't, they don't represent They don't want interests. to. They don't, right. No, again, and this is, I, I always harp on this, and it's a beautiful example of it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a detailed example. All of this stuff is by design. The Chamber of Commerce doesn't represent small businesses like that. And they do it because they don't want to. Do, they, they, there's a there's a there's an active decision to say no. We actually we actually don't represent their interests. We represent the interest of another club, and you're not in it. Well, and this is this uh, to sum that up. This is what has driven me over many many years. And it's uh, I was talking to some uh, somebody wanted to know about my flame retardant ban. I don't know if familiar that way, but I. I have a bill which I brought three different times to the committee over the last six years or five years to, blame, uh, to ban flame retardants uh, from uh, children's clothes, fabrics, uh, mattresses. Not only does it emanate a carcinogenous uh, fume, but also when it's burned, firefighters are, are dropping in dramatic numbers from health effects on their lungs. So, and it's been done in 15 other states. Right? The last time I had it in a committee, uh, they, they flew in a guy from California for the... Uh, 
Petroleum Council industry. I don't even know what they have to do with flame retardant, but chemical policy, petroleum council, they're all the same. And he, he's arguing, well, you know, everything you read on the internet, representative, and I had done a lot of work on this with the National Council of Environmental Legislators. I said, no, 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 I, I didn't read it. So finally, he, he got me angry enough where I said, I'll tell you what, it's my wallet. Put your wallet on. Let's look in there. Who pay, whose paycheck you're, uh, you're, you're, you're getting? I said, because mine comes from the people of Delaware. And I guarantee you, yours comes from the chemical policy. Institute, to which the chairman of that committee said, oh, no, no, Representative, we don't want to get personal. I said, no, the hell we don't want to get personal. I mean, that's the problem. Like, that's another thing is that that whole idea of decorum or, or what is allowed to be asked, that's actually not a personal question. I mean, if, you were, if, if your livelihood, if your very high standard of living is dependent upon a certain interest, that's not necessarily personal. That's a, that's a point. That's a that's a that's a that's something that needs to be known, and uh, but again, that's another way to quell sort of debate. It's another way to quash any kind of uh, inquiry into why someone would fly in, you know, uh, f uh, you know, five hours from California to lobby in Dover. I mean, you have to start thinking about these things. I don't think people think about them very much. No, well, they the the public does it, and that that, that the whole thing actually. Uh, in a nutshell, is that there are hundreds every day, hundreds of interests, well-heeled interests, representing corporate interests, representing Rodell's with the education, uh, uh, what you call it, uh, dismantling public education, dismantling, uh, representing uh, the uh, the corporations. Represent there are hundreds of them. I mean, they flood that place. Do you know traditional schools uh, don't have in their budget any money to hire lobbyists? And that if, if you walk into Dover, I can point out six well-heeled, well-paid lobbyists for charter schools. Now, how is that a fair uh, assessment of what's going on? It isn't. I can't change that. I can't change access that people come in. I have my own rules, and I, I'll get into them in a second. But I can be the lobbyist who educates the public in their own interests. That's why I used to go to the Almacetti show all the time. Well, because I, I wanted to go on air and hear myself talk. That's why I've been going on Rick Jensen's show. And, and, uh, and uh, I, I only do it most of the time. I only do it in person because I don't want to. You're not going to hang up a phone on me, Rick. Okay. <laughs> well, this, you can be uh, rest you, assured I, this is a uh, by design. This is in person yeah. only. Here. And, and that's, that's what I do. But, uh, but I do that because the policies that I'm trying to promote, or the, I, I guess maybe even the idealism I'm trying to promote, is in the best interest of the general public. The general public knows it here and there, is aware of it, but not enough to mount a offense. So I had to be their offense, but they had to be knowledgeable so they can demand the offense. And that's why, that's why I come on your show, uh, one of the reasons, because I'm not sitting here trying to denigrate uh, what people are doing or not doing in Dover. What I'm trying to do is point out the fact that unless the people and the public say, you know, overwhelmingly, that's fair, that's right, do it. And to make this demand, and I don't know how we're ever going to supplant, or not supplant, how we're going to replace these individual, uh, I guess you'd call it blockades against common sense and all that. Uh, but we can't stop trying. And that's what's important. Yeah, and I'm going to recommend this book one more time. It's Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean. It's, it's really about those, those blockades. It's about the codified blockades that just make it difficult to engage just make it difficult to, for a small business to join the Chamber of Commerce. 
just make it difficult because charter schools have five lobbyists and, and public schools have zero. Um, just make it difficult because when you're trying to pass a resolution at the National Conference of State Legislators, they fly in people from everywhere to 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 fucking strong arm uh, Kathy and Brian. Um, the, the these are very 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 difficult things to overcome, but we have to talk about them. We have to talk about them very seriously because we're going to have to fight. We're in a fight. They're trying by design to hold all of this down, and so you know. We've been very clear with a lot of different people. Just whatever you can do to get involved, whatever you can do to disseminate the message. Um, we just were trying to find a more fair and equitable way to do this because the way we're doing it is neither fair nor equitable. It's actually immoral and bad. And uh, and and, we, and and you know, I just I'm, I'm so glad you came in because you're you're at the fo you've been at the forefront for for a very long time. Uh, and I appreciate that. And, I, and when you asked before about successes i i guess in a way one way you you can <clears throat> declare a success story a partial success story is that last couple of years uh, i put together with Doug Cog's help uh, uh, uh laws to try to provide more uh openness and transparency to llc license files uh, since that time nick vasilowski who does a wonderful job of investigating this uncovered uh, the back page uh, El Chapo, did you know El Chapo had a, an LLC? Yeah, Do you know Manafort? One of his Ukrainian LLCs were transferred no, to I, an American I, LLC. I, I shudder to put think. A real estate I shudder to think about the ones we don't know about. Well, here here's a kicker to that, and I and I'm in the process of trying to figure out how to address that at this time. I met with uh, uh, Matt Myers and, and a bunch of other Catholic people and some other people with, uh, regarding the Manufactured Housing Committee, and 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 a tone of the conversation. Uh, it was a lot about Glasgow Court and and the uh, unwillingness of the owner there, Di Sabatino, to uh, do anything and just try to drain any money out of it. And during the course of the conversation, it was mentioned, well, she owns back taxes or something like that. And I, I said, well, why can't we recover these back taxes? I said, well, this at uh, the county, and I got the number a week later of every quest. The county has quite a few LLCs that owe back taxes that they can't recover from because there's no and not there's no beneficial owner declared. It's an agent. When you file an LLC, if you hire me as your agent and I file for you, I'm the only person. I have to have a contact number, but I don't give it out. I answer the questions, and that's where a lot of my corporate uh, bar conflicts were with with Melanie Smith the first time with the LLC because. She she works for a corporation, uh, a, a corporate bar uh, firm that has a huge portion of its money coming in from being agents for LLCs. I mean, wouldn't you like to have that? You can start a company. Since then, we found not only there was a million point five property taxes uncollectible at this time because they don't have anybody to place a lien against the individual. You need that. Uh, I don't know if that'll ever be rectified. But when you consider that, about 70% of that is school tax I mean, that, that yeah. we're losing too. And the agent's not liable in any sense for anything. Right, right. The agent is just uh, liable to say, I'll relay that. And that's, that's one of the things we want to fix. But here's the, here's the accomplishment to have. When I argued this point in a public debate, it was Rick Geisberg was here, uh, Joe Brady, and Drew Sears, uh, and uh, uh, Ezra Temko, I think. And a group of people, we had a debate, 
And the argument has always been given to me by uh, Jeff Bullock and Rick Eisenberger, uh, at the time Secretary of State and his assistant, that this has to happen. Corporate anonymity has to be uh, addressed at the national level. <coughs> Otherwise, it could affect Delaware if they try to do it alone. And I agree in a certain sense to that, but at the national level, they were so slogging through it, it was much more difficult. For, I can't accomplish that at the national level. I said, but the LLC is a different animal. That's ours. That's our baby. We, uh, when I went and tried to get a $25 increase to LLCs, which would have netted somewhere like $23 million in revenue, uh, the filing, filing amount was, uh, fee was $300 a year. I was told by the assistant to, uh, I, I guess it was Bullock's assistant, Secretary of State, that the last time they raised it, they got a bad reception from the people filing. I said, well, give me the numbers for the next hearing, what it was. And back then, it was 520,000, I think, LLCs. And since then, after the increase, it's grown to 890,000 now. Yeah, that's I, really, uh, uh, they're really running away. Yeah. But here's the thing that Nick just uncovered uh, almost by uh, by blind luck as he was pouring through how, how this is viewed. It was a New York Times article or something. And we verified it. There's a thing now called... Uh, a series LLC, where an LLC will form and have branches of LLCs under it, uh, which the same is like, uh, I think that probably this it's a series LLC at the uh, Harvey Hanna site with his subsidiary. Right, the, bo they the, pay, Boxwood, the Boxwood Road they plant. Pay, yeah, they yeah. pay $75 a year only. They even pay 300 and they can have- So let me get this straight. So the, comp the LLC that's- uh, redeveloping the entire GM plant on Boxwood Road. I grew up over there. That's how I kind of followed us. Uh, is paying $75 a year to put their money I here. don't know for sure. Uh, we've been trying to verify. But yeah, is. you can't tell. Yeah. That's the a problem. Most we don't paying, even know. The most are paying $300 a year. And, and, and there's like 20 LLCs that are listed. <coughs> Some of them now defunct under the same name but different branches of it. And, and I was told that every contractor usually creates LLCs for different projects so they can have a separation of, of responsibility and protection. LLCs are created to protect uh, li against li liability. Yeah, limited liability. Uh, That's the LL. But uh, that brought to mind uh, when I first got into office, I went over uh, to uh, North Hunter Forge Road, Anvil Park it was called, and there was a two houses, foundations and driveway were sinking into the hole. Determined it was a debris pit. And uh, went to the state, and with the help of uh, Jerry, uh, uh, my aide at the time, Jerry Grant, uh, found out that I made an application, and somehow they, they pushed it through. Maybe it was because they're run by Democrats, I don't know. But it was a million and a half to remedy it. And dig it up, I mean, they had to dig it up and redo everything under the underground structure. And they said, well, that bankrupts the debris pit money for a while. And I said, why can't we recover it? That's what I, and I, this is before I even got involved in LLCs. Magnus Construction built the homes in Academy Hills. Hundreds and hundreds of homes, half a million dollar homes, started, starting purchase price. Magnus Construction dumped that stuff in a brief pit. Magnus Construction then sold that property to an LLC, Magnus Bakery, which went, went, went bankrupt and out of existence. So they can't bill company doesn't exist anymore, which was for a $300 fee, was created as an LLC, its own LLC, does not exist anymore. 
even though the actual culprit was Magnus Construction. That's just an example, one example of how they can filter out their responsibilities under a legitimate program to create a liability protection, which I'm not going to deny that. But you can't do it with this almost uh, cloak and dagger type of Yeah, I mean, it's mechanisms to allow us to be run over. I mean, we can't, we're not... I don't like the—I mean, I've said this before, and it's everybody knows. I, I don't like the whole idea of sort of the hidden nature and basically taking a little bit to, so they could skirt taxes or hide money from, you know, it's just trusts and all of this stuff. But my biggest problem is if we're going to do it, where's our—like, our cut is not sufficient. Exactly. It's not yeah. nearly sufficient. Oh, yeah. The vigorish is not being paid. The, the envelope is light, and somebody needs to... If we're going to continue to do this, somebody needs to do something about that. Exactly. But here's what I'm going to close on. Uh, I'll talk about one of my, uh, one of my big victories this week. <clears throat> so I, it's no secret that I've said publicly that if uh, Representative Qualco ever did decide to run for governor, we would run the uh, campaign out of the bunker. The Wilmington office would be in the bunker. For many reasons, that's just... Basically a pipe dream of mine. I understand that. Um, but <clears throat> I did have a small victory yesterday. Uh, I was having lunch with a friend of mine from the neighborhood uh, who I hadn't seen in a while. He's an actuary in Philadelphia. He takes the train every day. And uh, he listens to podcasts. That's, that's his thing. And uh, I, I had forgotten. I hadn't seen him in a few months. And uh, I had forgotten that I had recommended this particular podcast, Highlands Bunker. And uh, he mentioned it. He was like, oh, how's it going? I was like, well, what do you think of it? And he said, well, after like the fourth or fifth episode, I kind of stopped listening because it's really sort of esoteric and a lot of like local politics and I can't follow it. Uh, but I did not realize the governor was such an asshole. That guy really sucks. And I said, uh, my friend, my work here is done. You never have to listen to another episode. I said, you're actually one of my star students. You've taken everything from the podcast that I'm trying to teach you, and I very much appreciate that you told me that. So, uh, John, we see you. Uh, we also see uh, Mr. Bollocks, who uh, we haven't mentioned in here before, but we know you're behind the scenes. We, we see you, too. We will, we will not uh, skirt away from mentioning your name, dragging you through the mud, because it's well, well-deserved, my friend. Um, John, thanks for coming in. This has been a big oh, my day. My pleasure. This has been a big day for the bunker. I hope you come back. Yeah, I don't know how big a day it is when you have me here. I will tell you that I seriously looked at uh, at the situation with uh, the flaws uh, in the current administration. And uh, if I were a younger man, uh, and if we hadn't passed, which I don't think I voted for, uh, a law which disallows you from running for another office, which affects every two years anybody in the House, but f every four years for, for the Senate, so they can do it. Uh, and I've been asked, begged almost, by people, no, 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 we need you where you're at, you can't afford it. Whether that's true or not, whether that's just an ego trip that I, that I want us to come to, I do think that uh, if it keeps getting as discouraging as it is, as it keeps this assault on, uh, on, uh, on the schools that they want if to, the, if the government wants to propose uh, put, taking the kids out of neighborhood schools. And I've had grandmothers call me from Wilmington saying, how am I going to walk my child to school now? Now she, I put them on a bus. How am I going to go to meet with their teachers? I can't do that anymore. When they put them in those bunkers they're creating, and uh, no offense to your bunker creation. Oh, none taken. I call them monoliths. <laughs> and, and, and they're not. They're not buildings. My wife sat on a school board for 40 years, I'll tell you right, right now. Those are not 
remediating uh, uh, accessible buildings for a K through eight. Many reasons. Number one is certainly the neighborhoods are all combined in there, K through eight. You're going to have not trips and bloods, but you're going to have neighborhood allegiances, which is going to cause conflict. Number two, you're taking those kids out of the comfort of a small school environment. You're going to put them into this barracks like structure. And then you're going to say, we're going to remediate these. This is what the governor said. We're going to give you $15 million. Oh, by the way, you have to match that with local tax. You just saw the failed referendum. Yes. That's going to be another. 10 million or something out of local taxpayer. And we're going to be able to put that, and I told him flat to his face. And this, I think we had our first major falling out of, I don't know if he even talks to me anymore. At this meeting, it was Earl Jakes, Sakola, Joe Barrow, a, couple, a bunch of people. And I said, take the $15 million and buy back a reading specialist for every classroom in Wilmington. Or take the $15 million and lower the classroom size. I said, either way will be more effective than your plans are and less, less disaffecting to the public schools. They plunged ahead with it. They forced that MOU down. I testified three or four different uh, meetings of the, of the Christina School Board and uh, it fell on deaf ears. And I, uh, there was two people that, that actually stood, stood tall. That was uh, Liz Page and John Young. And every one of these efforts is made to, uh, I, I, I think, almost uh, hurt the people we're, we're supposed to serve. Always makes me reflect on, you know, hey, should I, in all clear conscience, not make an effort to change this? Uh, but I, it's also the effort can't be an exercise of futility because that doesn't help anything, you know. Well, I, I want to. You mentioned about people may or may not talking, speaking to you anymore, and this reminded me of something that I wanted to read. And I'm sure people have have heard this before, but it it actually um, sort of makes me think of you as well. So this is from a, a, a FDR speech in uh, New York in '36, uh, I think. <clears throat> That's just a excerpt from the Madison Square Garden speech. You can look this up on YouTube. It's wonderful. I was there. <laughs> I told you. I wrote this speech. For nearly four years, you have had an administration which, instead of twirling its thumbs, has rolled up its sleeves. We will keep our sleeves rolled up. We've had to struggle with the old enemies of peace, business and financial monopoly, speculation, reckless banking, class antagonism, sectionalism, war profiteering. They have begun to consider the government of the United States a mere appendage of their own affairs. We know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. Never before in our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand today. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. Roosevelt. I think about when I when I hear that, I read or hear this speech every so often. I I think about what you just said. Like, uh, if somebody isn't talking to me based on something I'm doing that I feel perfectly in the moral right, I actually feel like it's a, I, I welcome it. I well, really do. I hope you'll come down to Dover sometime. I would love to. Visit. You can, you can see my, uh, I have a, a Eisenhower quote on my door. Uh, and uh, I just paraphrase it. Uh, Never confuse honest uh, reflections uh, of uh, disagreement and all that uh, with uh, un un being unpatriotic. It's, a, it's like a, here you go. If you really want to object to things that are wrong, you're the one who's right. Yes. Doing that. 
Absolutely. And I, true. I thought it, 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 I, it's not as eloquent as it is on there, but I have it on my door ever since I had it on my door when I did the interview about the Rebel Drunk Walker. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. I really appreciate okay, it. No problem.